This episode of the podcast is brought to you by That Sober Guy Meetings. Go to thatsoberguy.com, click on the live meetings tab, and register for the next Sunday morning live online support group recovery meeting. Today's guest is Jason Smith, author of The Bitter Taste of Dying. I got three words for you. Get this book. You are now about to witness the strength of street knowledge. You're listening to That Sober Guy Podcast on Recovery Radio. Living one day at a time for a sober, healthy, happy life. For more information, visit www.thatsoberguy.com. And now, let's start the show. All right, today's guest is Jason Smith, author of The Bitter Taste of Dying. Jason's a graduate of the University of California, Davis. Uh, his work's been published extensively in both online and print media. Jason is also creative director of TheRealEdition.com, an online community that allows addicts and their loved ones to publish their stories of addiction and recovery. Jason's heavily involved in the recovery community, where he frequently shares his experience, strength, and hope in getting out of the hell that is addiction. Currently lives in Northern California with his wife, Megan, and two children, Jaden and Isabella. Jason, what's up, man? Thanks for joining the show today. Hey, thank you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely, man. So, uh, we're, we're definitely going to get into your book, The Bitter Taste of Dying. Um, what is life like today being clean and sober for you? Man, my life, you know, that, that's one thing about writing a memoir is it's a great reminder of how bad it was. Um, so much, I mean, so much of that book is almost like a, you know, a fourth and fifth step where, um, you know, I, I, I sort of, to tell the stories uh, and to go back into the mindset that I was in, uh, made makes me really appreciate like waking up this morning and not being dope sick or waking up this morning and there was money in my bank account. You know, like yeah. I'm not, you know, I'm not putting my drug dealers kids through college no more. Like I, uh, it, it's, it's, it's very, it's just nice, man. It, it makes, yeah. it made me really appreciate just waking up and, and having a normal life. Like I can remember, being strung out and thinking, oh, I never want one of those normal lives. Look at those people. And and now, um, man, it's a beautiful thing. Like, you know, I'm walking uh, my daughter to the bus stop every morning and, and you know, things like that. Like, I, I really cherish and I appreciate those moments now. Um, but to get to that point, I had to sort of go through all the shit that I went through, um, you know, to make it here. Yeah, and you... You know, you said a good thing like you you actually get to recognize the fact and, and enjoy the things that you do. Um, what are some of the things that that you do to help keep you on that on that straight path, on that um on that on that clean and sober lifestyle? Like what's what's like a daily routine for you? You know, I, I gotta I mean I need I I gotta structure my life and sometimes as a writer that can be hard because uh, you know, I don't have a boss. And so, um, it, it requires a lot of self-motivation and, and, and self-discipline. Um, but at the same time, writing is one of those things, at least for me, that I can't force. And so if I'm not feeling it that day, like I can't do it. And, um, you know, so it, it, I have to stay pretty disciplined in terms of my regimen. And, 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 you know, I wake up at the same time every day. I've got a schedule that I keep to, um, as far as my recovery goes, my own personal story involves a 12-step program, um, and, you know, and that's just my story. It's not 
I'm, I'm not one of those guys that say it has to be 12 step or nothing, but for me, that's what works. And so, you know, going to meetings and staying plugged in with the support group and people who understand and things like that. Um, that's something I always do. And to be honest, it's something I really enjoy. You know, I enjoy, uh, getting out to meetings and seeing people and seeing how they're doing. Um, and then there's the flip side of it. You know, you go out there and you see people doing the same things, you know, in and out, in and out, that just can't get it. And, um, or they're choosing not to get it. And, you know, I see them and my heart breaks. And at the same time, it makes me really grateful that I'm not there. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, one, one of the, um, one of the articles that you had written, I, I think it's on your blog, um, what happens in rehab might not stay in rehab. Right. And, uh, it, it was, it was a really good article. My, my wife read it last night too. And, um, and there, there was a line in there that I, that I was reading across that really hit me. And it said, that's the thing about drug addiction. You hear a lot of shit, but you never really dig too far to confirm it because whatever you find out is going to be covered with layers of bullshit, manipulation and half truths. And, you know, we, we've gone through that and I'm sure all of us in the recovery community, either with ourselves, um, or with some of the the friends and family members that we know, or people we've met maybe in, in recovery. Um, and you don't, you never really know what is true and, and what is not true. And so it's really hard to, to kind of get into that, um, that person's space, I guess, and offer them help. And that's why I always say to myself, like, I'm the only one that can help myself. You know, you're the only one that can help yourself. We're, we're never going to be able to do it for somebody else, our kids, our, our family, um, unfortunately. Uh, what, what would you say to that? And, um, you know, what, what was going through, through your thoughts as you kind of wrote this article, um, uh, what happens in rehab might not stay in rehab? Well, on that, on that story there that, you know, it's, it's just, it's in two halves. You know, the first half of it is it sort of endears you to the people in in the rehab, and everyone's got a story and everyone's got a history, and um, you know you see start to see a little bit beneath the surface. And then the other side of it is sort of like a where are they now? And on that where are they now? You know, it's sad. Um, you know, the, the the guy in the story, Carlos. You know, I still stay in touch with him. Um, one of them's dead. Uh, the other, the other one last I heard was, you know, just off and doing her thing. And so it's like, I can't let, you know, you, you really have to walk that line between letting them, uh, being there for them without letting them affect your recovery in a negative way. And, um, for, for me, you know, I just got a call today from a, a lady who, who got my number from a mutual friend and whose son is really going through it right now with heroin addiction. And uh, he made a comment to her about, um, you know, if if this doesn't, if you don't do this and this, I'm gonna die. You know, doing that sort of drug addict manipulation yeah. thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, she and she asked me like, is he? Should I be take this serious? And I, and I said I don't know. Like I I don't want to be the one to give you that answer because yeah. if I say no and then he turns around and dies, you know, I don't want to live with that guilt. And so I, I really try not to get involved in, in those kinds of decisions or those kinds of situations. Um, but, you know, when you go to meetings or you go to a counseling, group counseling, or anything that involves other addicts, you know, they're going to affect you. Um, it's, but it's always up to, you know, I, I believe it's always up to me how much I let them affect me and in what ways I let them affect me. So if, if somebody that I care about goes out and they relapse and they're living in the, you know, on the streets or whatever, like, I can I can either let that drag me down 
or I can use that as motivation, like to to keep doing this thing and to keep plugging away at this recovery thing because I don't want that to happen to me. And so I think it's a it's it really is at some point a matter of perception and perspective in terms of how you let those things affect you. You see those other things, those other people, and what they're going through, and we we do we want to offer them, um, you know, help. But at the same time, I think by helping ourselves and and that saying of attraction rather than promotion and and we just hope that we do the best that we can and hopefully by spreading you know our you know the things that we've been through um and and some of the things that we've learned maybe that we're able to get that message out there and people can see the way that we're living our lives in the now uh versus you know that lifestyle that that we used to live um yeah and i mean when i look at like my early recovery the people that inspired me the most weren't people that gave me things. They weren't people that were hand giving me hand, you know, that were uh, enabling me. Or they weren't people that, um, when I hit them up for money, they gave it to me. Those were that's, those aren't the people who inspired me or who motivated me. People that motivated me were the people who seemed to be having a good life uh, after having been where I was. And so to know that the, that that guy in that meeting used to be a hardcore addict and now he's got a wife and kids and a job and he's a productive member of society, like he doesn't have to give me anything. He doesn't have to, you know, just, just seeing him gives me hope that maybe I could do that too. Yeah, that, that's, that's so true. And, uh, you know, we really learn from each other and I can't remember what, which article it was. There was a couple of them that I, that I had read. Um, you had mentioned something about just being in, in a treatment setting and it's just the, almost the madness and the unbelievableness that you could put, you know, a few strangers who have this one thing in common addiction or, or alcoholism, and they can really sit in there and help each other, you know, and that's, that's always been one of those, um, one of those strange things that I, I don't really know that, that I understand myself, but I know that it works because I've experienced it myself. Anyways, let's, um, let's get into the book, man. Um, so when, when did the, the bitter taste of dying, where did that, where did that kind of start? Um, so, I mean, it started as just sort of, a um, it's it's a weird thing man, how it all came about. Like I I wrote a story I wrote a story in a local newspaper called Heroin in the Foothills, mm-hmm. and um, I didn't have any writing background or writing experience. And I sort of just at about a year clean walked into this newspaper and pitched them this idea, um, and they let me run with it, and it, and it ended up uh, doing really well here locally. And so um, I had a, a cousin of mine who said, hey, man, um, you know, you should check out this website, medium.com. You can post stuff. People can read it. And, and uh, I, so I started writing. I started writing, like, first-person narrative. And the first, actually, the first story I wrote was the first chapter in the book, which is um, a story about when I found my uncle dying of a heroin overdose when I was 14. And so I had never... I had never told my family what happened that day, really. I mean, they knew my uncle died because it was just him and me at the house. Um, and my parents were out of town. And so uh, they, nobody really knew all the, like, the sort of intricacies of that day. And I started writing about it. And the more I started writing about it, the less it started to hurt. And I didn't realize how much I was holding on you know, of, of this story until I wrote it and let it out and felt that sense of relief. And... Um, I was able to share it with my family and they were able to sort of see what went on that day and things like that. But it inspired me to keep going. So I wrote and I wrote, I think the second story I wrote was the story about when I went to jail in Mexico. And, um, 
those two stories got me uh, a deal with uh, Thought Catalog Books, and they approached me, and the editor over there, Mink, she said, you know, would you be interested in, in putting this into a memoir? And, and so I did. And, uh, it, I mean, it, it all happened really fast from the time I started writing to the time I got the, the book published. But, um, you know, every every chapter of that book is sort of um, a, a story that, that I needed to get out for whatever reason. And uh, that that's sort of I discovered by accident, and you know how valuable writing can be in that sense. Um, you know, of just sort of providing relief. Yeah, that it it really is that therapy. You know, it's very therapeutic um, to to write. Um, and you're you're fucking good at it, man. I just want to let you. Oh, I mean, I'm you. sure I'm sure you get that a lot. But I mean, they're they're really that like that first chapter you were talking about. I mean, it, it just it. It's it's almost unbelievable. I was telling my I went back to my wife. I said, "You're, you're not going to believe this." I mean, look, listen to that. I kind of told her, you know, about it. And um, I don't know if you're comfortable with talking about that about that first chapter about Uncle Mark, the master carpenter, ping pong champion, friend, <laughs> um, and heroin addict. Um, is that something that, uh, that that we could touch? Oh yeah, on? I mean, I wrote about it, so I'm definitely comfortable talking about it. Sure. Yeah, that day was crazy. It was a um, it was a Saturday morning. And uh, my uncle, uh, he was a, an amazing carpenter, an amazing human being who just happened to be, uh, you know, severely addicted to heroin. And um, he came up to, he had come up to stay with us uh, to get clean, and he was able to stay clean for a few months. And and uh, my parents went out of town, and the night before, um, the 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 night before it all went down, you know, we stayed up. Him, me, and uh, I think this, I just changed the name of the book, but Mikey, um, you know, we were playing ping pong and listening to Hendrix records, and and you know, just really had a nice night. And the next morning, I woke up, and when I walked into the uh, the living room there, you know, I saw him sort of slumped back against the recliner with the needle in his arm, and he was out. And, uh, you know, I, was, I mean, I was 14, so I didn't really know how to handle it. I didn't know, like, I was afraid of calling 911 because I didn't want him to get in trouble. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I was afraid, you know, I called 911 and the cops show up and he wakes up and then now he's going to jail. And so I just kind of pulled up a chair and watched. And so it's, it was really the surreal day because for a good hour there, I just kind of pulled up the chair and watched him die. I didn't know it at the time that that's what I was watching, but I was watching a man die. Like I was watching wow. the, this. I, I mean, I was seeing the. This is what happens during an uh, opiate overdose, and uh, I watched his breathing change. Uh, later on, it's actually interesting. I was at a. Um, I was showing the story to um, a woman who's a friend of mine, and she's a nurse, and she was explaining to me that. You know, the breathing, because in the book I explained how his breathing style and how he was breathing at the time and how it yeah. changed. And she was telling me, like, she was sort of telling, explaining to me why his breathing changed and that, you know, that that's what happens. Like, that's all overdoses, that's what happens. And, um, or opiate overdoses anyway. And so he, you know, he starts dying and, and, um, eventually starts foaming out of the mouth. And at that point is when I called 911. And, um, you know, we tried giving him CPR, uh, Mikey woke up, uh, and, um, you know, we both tried giving him CPR and, uh, I mean, the, the paramedics said he died between the house and the hospital, but, 
you know, I, I mean, I, I watched him, I felt, I felt him die. And so that's where the book, the title of the book actually comes from that is, is when I was giving him mouth to mouth, that taste, you know, when, when he was foaming out of the mouth, it got into my mouth and it was just, it was not a nice scene. And, uh, that taste, you know, I'll never forget that taste. And, um, you know, that's where the title of the book comes from. But that was, you know, that was my first introduction to, uh, drug addiction, but it's, it's strange because when I started my own addiction, I saw it so much differently because mine was pharmaceuticals and I never made that connection. I never made that connection yeah. of yeah. what he went through and what I was doing. You know, I was always able to sort of rationalize what I was doing because it was different. Um, but despite all that, you know, it, that's, uh, you know, that was my first real introduction to the drug game. And, uh, that, that's, that's something that I, that I had actually noted down here was, um, you had said that, you know, the pharmaceuticals and I, I think a lot of people don't, they don't put that recognition on the, on, on the pill and because, and I put this in quotes, they're le- you know, legal drugs, you know, doctors prescribing them. Here you go. They must be okay. Um, I mean, I, to my knowledge, um, prescription medication is, is one of the biggest, uh, abused drugs I think in the nation. Um, so what do you, what's your take on, on big pharma, the war on drugs, um, you know, legal drugs. Uh, I really think that, that I know there's a lot of people out there that are bringing awareness to this cause, but I think it's still so not talked about, especially in the mainstream media, because it's such a big business. Um, have you written anything about that? Uh, or what, or what kind of what's your it's take actually, on Actually, it's funny that you asked that. Uh, I'm actually right in the middle of a piece right now that, really? um, I, I think it's going to be pretty hard hitting. That's and, awesome. Dude, I can't uh, wait to read it, that. Yeah, and it, it, it's a, uh, it, but it, it, it sort of details the um, the rise of the prescription drug epidemic and how it happened. And um, yeah, I think it'll be a, I think it'll be a powerful story once it's all done. Um, but you know, as far as like my my thoughts on it, it's. Um, you know, it, it's what what happens to your body when you if you put heroin in your in your veins and you're in your you metabolize it into morphine and then you take codeine and it metabolizes you know some oxycodone or something and your it metabolizes it into morphine. What's the difference? I mean, basically, you put yeah. they're the same they're the same thing. They're gonna invoke the same reaction from you. Um, you know, I think I, I really think when it comes to the prescription drug problem, um, we haven't even reached like the tip of the iceberg of what we're going to see. And uh, these drugs have been overprescribed by doctors who, um, in a lot of ways, and this is one thing I've learned writing the story I'm writing, where I, I came into it with a different attitude toward doctors. The more I read about uh, what went on, I actually uh, feel a little bit of sympathy for the doctors because uh, the doctors were getting squeezed by legislators um, to start, you know, treating pain, treating pain, treat pain, treat pain, and and uh, they were being raided. Uh, they made a fifth pain a fifth vital sign, meaning, you know, that that's a little smiley face when you go in the hospital. Which one of these are you? What's your pain? One to ten. And if you, you know, didn't treat it right, then you were given a bad rating. I mean, it, it was it's it's crazy. And at some point, like, I think we're going to have to ask the bigger picture of, like, at what point did Americans as a society uh, come to the decision that we no longer wanted to feel any pain? Wow. Because that's that's really what we're talking about here. I think the pills, 
the pills are feeding that, but I, I think it's feeding something. And the underlying question we're going to have to ask is, like, are, are we really a society that refuses to feel anything uncomfortable anymore? Because, I mean, there's pills, and it's not just for physical pain. I'm talking emotional pain. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I had a, a friend who um, broke up with his walk. It was actually his fiance. And uh, he came, uh, you know, like um, probably two weeks later, and his doctor had put him on an antidepressant um, because he was, like, feeling so down. Mm-hmm. And, and I remember telling him, I was like, dude, what? You, you're supposed to feel down. Like, it's okay to feel down. That's like a human emotion. Yeah. Um, but it, but we don't want to feel that. Like the, And the doctors are, are there to treat it, and the pharmaceutical industry is there to sell it, like uh, an antidote to anything that's unpleasant now. And I think it's, I think, you know, it's going to be debilitating in the society because so much of what we learn as we grow up comes as a result of hurt. You know, that first heart, I couldn't love my wife the way I love her if I hadn't gone through heartbreak before. Mm. You know, I couldn't, uh, I couldn't appreciate the life that I have now if I didn't have the pain that I felt before. I think there's, there's a certain strength that comes from going through adversity. And, um, I think there's now, I, I think it's a tendency for so many people, uh, when, when they get put in that position, they just go get a pill to numb it out. You know, they're feeling anxious instead of investigating, well, why do you feel anxious or what do you feel anxiety about and really processing it and dealing with the issue, we just take a Xanax. You know, if if my shoulder's hurting and um, I go to the doctor, he doesn't really look to see what is causing the shoulder pain. He just gives me a pill to mask the pain. And so we never really get to the real issues. And I think that's that's the big... Um, you know that that that's the, the big victim here. That's uh, I think as a society we're going to have to decide whether or not that's how we want to go about. It. Yeah, and and uh, and and so true. The fact that we must go through adversity, we must fail at things, we must make mistakes at things in order to to learn. Uh, to help shape the, the, the men, the women that we become as we grow older. So, uh, you know, this is kind of funny, I think, but, uh, you know, I don't believe in the everybody gets a fucking trophy type of thing. You know what I mean? Because it's very, right. it's very similar to that. We need, you know, as kids, we need to experience losing. We need to understand <laughs> yeah. that we're not always going to win. We're not always going to get the things that we desire in our lives. We're not always going to get the jobs that we want, you know, and, and when we can really take those and learn from them and then move on to the next experience and apply that instead of just, here's a pill, numb it out and go about your business, pay your taxes and uh, be a good, be a good slave. Really? I mean, that's, that's kind of the way I, I almost see that. Yeah. I mean, and it, it's funny you bring this up. I was playing Uno. My, my wife was sitting on the couch. I was playing Uno with our daughter and she's five. She just started kindergarten and uh, we're playing Uno and I beat her. And she's so used to her grandma letting her win. And she didn't know how to handle that. Yeah. And she's like, well, when, when do I get to win? I said, when you're good enough. <laughs> like, keep practicing. This is how you get better. Like, yeah. we're going to keep playing, and you'll get better, and then eventually you're going to beat. You're going to win. Um, but I, uh, but Grandma lets me win. I said, well, well you ain't at Grandma's. And, and, you know, and, and you know, you do it in a loving way, but I, I agree. You know, I think it's important yeah. that, uh, you know, ki- children at that age learn that, like, that it's not always going to be a success, and that's okay. 
Like losing yeah. is okay if you take it as an opportunity to get better and to learn what you did wrong last time. Yeah. And what did you do wrong? What can you improve on? And what can you practice? And, and um, you know, but when it comes to like um, medication and things like that, yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I just interviewed uh, Johan Hari, who did, who wrote a book called Chasing the Scream, and he just did a TED talk that, that got a lot of exposure that deals with addiction. And, um, you know, he, he's of the belief and in, in a lot of what he says, I agree with uh, some stuff I don't, but, the, uh, most of what he was saying, I agree with in the sense of, you know, addiction, um, is, is caused by really a severe disconnect with the rest of society. Like you're, you're not bonding mm-hmm. with anybody else. You're bonding with your substance and, and, um, yeah, you know, when, when it comes to drug addiction today, um, yeah, I mean, look, if look at uh, the amount of of debt being carried by people in the middle class right now and the amount of or the amount of homes that have been foreclosed upon. Um, I, I just say, of, look at the, the middle class. It, it barely exists anymore at that, you know? Right. I mean, you, and, you, and so everybody's struggling. I mean, yeah. everybody's struggling right now. And um, it ain't, it's not it, it's not even a Republican Democrat thing, in my opinion. It's it's a. Uh, well, I don't want to get too political, but, um, you you know, we're, we're kind of, like you said, we are slaves to a lot of these corporations and these banks and these financial institutions. And, and so if I'm working, uh, 12 hour days digging ditches and, uh, and I hate my job and I don't get paid enough, but I got to keep it, um, because I got to pay rent and that's the only thing I can really afford to pay. Uh, so, you know, I, I go and I, and I do a job that I, that I, I, I don't want and that I wish I could, there was an opportunity to advance or to move up, but there isn't. Um, but I keep that job and, and I come home to uh, a wife or to, you know, a family that I'm not happy with or, or that, uh, just the stress is becoming too much. Like it makes sense why people want to just sort of numb that out or medicate it. Yeah. And I, I think quality of life and addiction are really tied together. And I think, um, you know, it, it's one of those things where uh, if I go down to the gas station at four o'clock, um, I mean, it's a line out the door for, for liquor sales and it's just people getting off of work and they just mm-hmm. want to go home and turn off for a few hours. Mm-hmm. And I can't really say I blame them. <laughs> you know, I yeah. can't really say I blame them because I've been there. Um, and you know, some of them, some of them, I don't know, I don't know if people, they've got problems or not, but, um, with, with alcohol or, or with drugs or, or whatever, but like, I get that, I get that, that desire to want to just kind of tune everything out and turn it off for a little while. And, and, and not feel, which is, which is kind right. of what we were, we were talking about just a few minutes ago. And, 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 you know, back to your point real quick, I, I have to touch on it. I'm, I'm trying hard not to, but I have to, the two party system is a, is a show. The whole the whole damn system is out of order. Okay, so I bring that up because it is kind of relevant to what we're talking about here. And I, I highlighted this line in here because I was fucking cracking up when I read it. It says, in the legal world, the girl who just got drunk fucked by a stranger eight hours prior had the moral high ground. And the <laughs> and the, the the basis of what, you know, where that line fits in, I was hoping maybe you could explain in, you know, in, in a minute or two kind of what this article is about and what you saw going into the court systems because I've seen the same thing and many of us who are who are kind of um, up to date on on this type of thing um, it's 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 very it, it's very common I guess is what I'm getting at 
yeah, I mean, that's a story about being caught in the system. And, and, um, it's in a, in a system that's designed to keep you in it. And so I'm watching, you know, basically, uh, I had some legal shit that I had to deal with. And, and don't get me wrong, I put my, that, it was my legal stuff. I did it, so I needed to handle it. Mm-hmm. But I'm watching, I'm watching this sort of plea, plea deal after plea deal after plea deal. I'm just kind of watching the lawyers, the public defenders pass them off to the district attorneys and then, you know, and then just kind of runs them through. And they're putting these, you know, the judge tells them, okay, you're going to take, we're suspending your driver's license, um, but you need to take these parenting classes and you need to take this DUI class and you're to maintain employment. And that's like the restriction, you know, that's what they tell this yeah, guy. Yeah. And I'm thinking like, there's no way this guy, like, you know, how, how's he going to get to work? Yeah. How's he going to get to his DUI classes? How's he going to get to his parenting classes? And so what's going to happen is he's going to fail, which is going to bring him back into the system. Um, you know, or back in front of a judge to explain why he failed. And then as a consequence of, of that failure, that he's going to have even more restrictions put on him to the point where, like, at some point, the guy's just going to say, fuck it and stop coming. Yep. Yep. And that's, that's pretty much what our legal system is, uh, right now is, um, you know, we, we put, we put these demands on people and then we strip away, um, any resources they're going to need to meet those demands. And, and I think if you look at it from a big picture, it's like, it, that makes sense. It well, makes sense why they do that. that that's, look at all those judges and all those clerks and all those lawyers and, and all those bailiffs, like everybody who's employed by this, by this criminal system, by the justice system, everybody who has jobs as a result, it's in their best interest to keep people coming back. It's not in their best interest to, you know, to, to rehabilitate, rehabilitate anyone. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, uh, and, you know, and I, and I always want to say, because I have, I have friends who, and I'm sure you do as well, who are involved in that line of work. And so I think that, um, I think there's a, there's a thin line in between that. Definitely. That's, you know, I don't want to get into the whole good cop, bad cop type of thing right now. Um, but the system is designed as a, as a, as a business. And I think that's what, when, when you really look at it for what it is, it is a business and, and, you know, we won't get too into the whole, you get into the whole private prison system. I mean, we have private prisons in this fucking country. Like what, like who, that's unbelievable to me. So how, how do we, how do we profit on that? Well, we keep, we keep, um, felons coming in and we keep them coming in and we keep convicting people. So it really is, like you said, an endless cycle. And I, I can't remember exact statistics, but I know so many of them are drug related charges where people are addicted to yeah. drugs, you know, and, and that's, Almost that's half, really a, uh, a little thing. bit over half, a little bit half of federal prisons, uh, or in fact, I think federal prisons closer to 70% and God, state prisons closer to 50% uh, were drug related. And, which which makes you think. So let's say let's take the fifty percent number. So that's half. Okay. Okay. Uh, let's say half the federal inmates are there for drug related charges. So um, hypothetically, if right now in the White House there was a button that could be pushed, and that button would eradicate drug addiction forever, like there would be no more drug addiction in this country. People would be cured. There, it just wouldn't exist. They couldn't push it. Because if they pushed it, then that means 50% of the lawyers, 50% of the judges, 50% of the police officers, 50% of the correctional officers are going to be unemployed overnight. Mm-hmm. And that would, and that, and that would cause a panic. So, uh, you know, that, that's the bad news is, is 
we can't look, I don't believe, we can look to the government to fix this problem for us because it's not in their best interest to fix it. In fact, it's in their best interest to keep us going through the system. Yeah. And I don't mean the individuals working it. I'm but, talking yeah. about the I'm talking about the system. The system yep. itself that they have no they have no control over. These are the I'm people the at system. the top. These are the people at the top that that were right. that, you're, that the, you're referring to. Right. And, and, and so it's not in it's not in the government's interest to to um combat to really try to do something about drug addiction because the government employs so many people because of it. Um, that's the bad news. The good news is, I think, we don't need them. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think we need the government to do this for us. So that's like when it comes to pharmaceuticals and things like that. I think it's it's up to us to stop demanding them. It's up to us to stop, you know, to, it's it's supply and demand type of thing. And in the same way that, that um, if we stopped demanding the drugs in, in America, Mexico would stop supplying them. They're not going to, they're not mm-hmm. going to go through all that effort to bring drugs to a country that's not going to buy them. Um, in, in that same fashion, we can, we, as, as, as a collective body, and, and that's, that's, I think, where the, the difficulty comes in because we are so not collected in recovery. Um, there, you know, there, we have a lot of little, uh, advocacy groups and things like that. But there's no, there's no real central voice where we can make demands and say, hey, we want this changed. Hey, we want this policy. Hey, we want, you know, we don't have that voice. Uh, we don't have that power um, like, a lo- like a lobbyist. Uh, you know, we don't have a lobbyist group in Washington, you know, working for us. And so I, I think that's where we have to come together. And once we come together, then we can start making these demands and we can start um, ha- making our voice heard um, because the, the government's not going to do it for us. It's 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 such a good point, man. It's so it's so valid and it's so true. And it and you know what? Just the thought popped into my head. That's exactly what we're doing right now. That's exactly what you're doing by by writing. You know, writing books, writing um, writing articles about this kind of shit. That's the same reason I talk to different people and uh, share share my knowledge and, and my opinions and my experiences too. And so I think at least you know at, at least at the minimum we're we're doing you know, the right thing that we can do right now. And, uh, I think the more that the more people do that, and, and it, it really does seem to me, I don't know, I don't know about to you, but just in the last couple of years, it really does seem like so many more people are waking up to this and realizing, you know, um, how the central banks control everything and how the prison system and the court systems is a business, you know, and, 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 and people are starting to understand that. So you can kind of see, um, that, that more people are speaking out about it. Um, I just, yeah. And and I think, I, I I think, you know, people that got um, loved ones, you know, or or, like when it comes to addiction, for example, I think, I think there's a, a generational shift that's occurring where, People today are much more likely uh, and much more willing to put themselves out there, to put their face out there, and, and, and say, "Yeah, I'm an addict, and here's my story," mm-hmm. um, than say a generation ago. And and I think you know that's that's the thought behind the website that I'm uh, working that I uh, I've co-founded, therealedition.com, where it's basically a spot for people to tell their story. And here's you know and and, and to humanize. These, these stories of addiction um, and, and to make them real because that, you know, when you think drug addict, if you're still thinking a, a drug addict, what a drug addict looks like is that guy in the gutter with a needle in his arm in the back alley somewhere, you are, you know, very mistaken. A drug addict today, 
um, takes all shapes and sizes and all forms. And uh, I think the more those people tell their story, the more we can humanize, you know, uh, this, this, you know, affliction. Um, so I, I, I'm just looking at the clock here and I want to respect your time. Uh, if there's someone out there listening right now who's struggling, man, who's who's just at that point, that breaking point, like they want help, but they don't know what to do to get it, uh, what what can you tell them, Jason? Uh, all I can say is that I've been there. Um, I, I've been as, as low as as the human being can feel, and and, and done things, and been um, experienced things uh, for which I felt tremendous amounts of guilt and shame. And I've been there wondering if it could get better. And I've been there wanting to die. And uh, my life today is a beautiful life. So something happened between then and now. Um, and, and so all I'll say to somebody who's who's struggling, um, you know, is that it, it gets better. It, it will get better if you let it get better, but it's going to take some work. You know, if if just one person out there hears here's one thing that sticks and it helps them today or tomorrow, I mean that's that's really what what this whole this whole thing is about. Uh, so, uh, your website authorjasonsmith.com. dot com, um, Jason, and, and also check out therealedition dot com as well. Uh, where else could people contact you or find any more info out about you? Um, I mean, they can go uh, if they just search jasonsmithmedium.com, dot com. Uh, that's medium like the size. Uh, then they can um, pull up some of my writing. All my writings on my website, like you said, authorjasonsmith.com, uh, Amazon, uh, The Bitter Taste of Dying. It's available in print and an ebook. Um, but yeah, uh, the website's probably the easiest way because that's, you can actually contact me directly by email um, there too if you have any questions about anything. Yeah, everyone listening out there, I highly recommend getting The Bitter Taste of Dying. It's an amazing story, it's a great book. Uh, Jason, thank you so much, man, for taking the time to, to come on today and share some of your thoughts, man. Oh, thanks for having me. This was fun. It was, man. I hope to talk to you again. Yeah, for sure. This has been another episode of That Sober Guy Podcast on Recovery Radio with Shane Raymond. For more information, visit www.thatsoberguy.com or you can email Shane at sobriety at thatsoberguy.com. Thanks again for listening and enjoy a sober, healthy, happy life.